So good to be with you guys today. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Sandy Esfeld. I'm on staff here. We really still are celebrating what God did last Easter Sunday. That experience was just awesome. And we're encouraged by the response of people. If you're here today because you came last, last week on Easter Sunday, we welcome you. And we're glad that you're here with us this morning. And we encourage you to come back again and again as you're able to. And I also want to let you know, if you made that life-changing decision last Sunday and prayed and asked Christ into your life, that is something worth celebrating. And we just want to encourage you in that. Uh, Pastor Nick Cadoon has reached out to everybody who filled out that card and said, I've done that. And we've got something called the Kickstart Kit, which is a, a, a bunch of things that will help you learn and grow uh, in your new faith. So if you didn't get that email and you want that, talk to Nick out in the foyer after the service is over, and we'll get that to you. All right, so today we're launching a new series of messages. I'm excited about it. I think it's going to inspire us and encourage us and build up our faith. And I think it's also going to challenge us uh, to be all in when it comes to our relationship with God. And the series is called The Pursuit. And in this series, we're looking at the, the life of one of the great people in the Bible. His name is King David. And his life story spans from 1 Samuel into 2 Samuel. And we're going to be spending quite a bit of time there over the next few months. So I just want to encourage you to kind of focus in on that in the scriptures. And you can read up in advance each week. For instance, for next Sunday, you can read chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. That'll get you ready for that. But for today, would you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15? And 16 is right beside it. And then I'm going to unload a whole bunch of verses on you. See if you can track with me here. Put a piece of paper in Ephesians 1 and 1 Corinthians 1 and 1 Peter chapter 2 and the book of Revelation chapter 1. Oh, and Psalm 89. There's a few other verses, but you'll have to just pick them up as we go through here together. And I'll mention these again. Uh, the reason that we're in this series is because we are sensing that God is calling us as a church to pursue his presence like never before. And God really likes to see his people take risks of faith in this area. In fact, I really believe in the life of David, we have a great example of someone who was on the pursuit. Someone who pursued the presence of God with great boldness and great tenacity. And so today we begin our whole series uh, with some somber and serious words at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 15. The last verse, and it'll be on the screen, it says this, And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is the introduction to David. His predecessor didn't do well. The Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now, friends, there's times in our life when we all regret decisions that we make, right? We make decisions, sometimes they're not the best ones, and we say, I regret that. Happens in churches, happens in elder boards, happens on staff teams. We go, oof, I wish we didn't make that decision. But here's God saying in his book, I regret that decision. I regret that I made Saul king over Israel. And then we begin with David. Chapter 16 of verse 1. A brand new era erupts. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? 
Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled. When they met him, they asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look on the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. King Saul was a piece of work. He really, really was a king who had a good start, but it very quickly went sideways on him. Although he was good-looking and handsome and physically fit and kind of a natural choice to be king, he shows up in the Bible as an embarrassment on the record of the rulers of Israel. He made three serious leadership er errors at the very beginning of his kingship. First thing he did that was wrong is in 1 Samuel chapter 13, he offered unauthorized offerings on the altar. He didn't let the priests do it. He took hold of sacred things. He broke the rules. He was also hot-tempered as a guy. He could fly off the handle in a moment. So he made a rash vow one day that none of his soldiers could eat any food until the battle was over. And then he found out that his son Jonathan had had a scoop of honey, and so he was going to put him to death until the soldiers intervened and said, not on our watch. And then he failed to totally wipe out the Amalekites and all their stuff after a battle, saving their best cattle and grain along with King Agag as victory spoils. And this was the last straw with God. This was the deal breaker. Samuel the prophet comes on the scene in chapter 15, at around verse 22, 
He says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And Samuel points his finger as a prophet to this young king named Saul. And he says to him, in effect, this is the end of your era. And let's not underestimate the role of a prophet when it comes to the guidance of the people of God. God raises up his prophets. They speak for him. That's not an Old Testament thing. That's also a New Testament reality. There's a different ministry of the prophets in the New Testament, but they're still necessary and still vital. And you can see that in Ephesians 4 at verse 11 and Ephesians 2 at verse 20. But let's not underestimate what's going on in this time period. The prophet hears from God, sees what God is saying, and comes forward and declares the end of one king and the beginning of a new one. It was time for a new era. Someone who would take the kingship that would be after God's own heart. Someone who would have a passion to pursue the presence of God. Really, it was time for David. Now, if you don't know who David is... Guess what? Over the next several months, you're going to have a lot of opportunity to figure out what he was all about. Because over the next several weeks and months, we're going to be going well into his life story here for most of our Sundays. And he really stands out as someone kind of unique, you know? Uh, like Abraham and Moses and all those guys, David's in that company, right? He's, he's at that level of influence, but different. Abraham is known as the father of our faith. He had kind of a boldness to believe Moses was a great leader who took the people out of slavery in Egypt, got them ready for the promised land for the next generation. Peter is known in the Bible in the New Testament as someone who who was passionate in his zeal for following Jesus and the church, and Paul the Apostle is known for his great teaching. What is David known for? David is known for this. He is called a man after God's own heart. Someone who just separated everything out and said, I'm going after the heart of God. I'm going to be pursuing his heart with all of my life. That's David. And he's arriving in our scene here this morning as a shepherd boy. Obscure, not well known, but he's already being set apart for greatness. He's a leader, he's also a poet. He's a musician. He wrote many of the Psalms in the Bible. He understood more about worship than I think anyone else in the Old and New Testaments except Jesus. He was actually an outlaw for a a while, maybe about 10 to 15 years of his life. He had to live on the run, escaping from Saul, who was always trying to kill him. And he drew around him some passionate world changers who said, we can sense in you that you're after God's heart, so we're just going to hang out with you. Because wherever you go, we're going. He was deeply concerned about God's glory not being defamed. He couldn't stand it when the glory of God was, 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 was dismissed away. And we'll see that next week as he faces a giant of a guy. David was a man after God's own heart. He didn't get caught up in externals. He, he was someone who cultivated a desire deep in his soul, to really know God. That was the foundation of his life. And for that, he's 
set apart from all others in the scriptures. And friends, I think that David is in a very special way. He's an example. He's, he's a model. He's a prototype for us of what it means to be men and women in the kingdom of God who pursue his presence. This is not just a story about David. This is a story about us. To passionately pursue God with our lives is the greatest call that we can ever have. And the great pursuit is actually discovered in realizing that we are chosen and called and qualified. And that's what we're going to see in the life of David today. It makes us ask the question, do I really know who I am? Do I see myself as I should see myself? Who am I? Where am I heading? What is my future all about? What's my true identity? All of those things are spoken into in a powerful way through the life of David. And in this first chapter of this message, we're going to see how that speaks to us about our destinies. And it begins with this. It's something we can all say. I am chosen. Can you say that to yourself? I am chosen. I'm chosen just like David was chosen. God had already done some really amazing choosing before even the moment of Samuel going to Jesse's house. God had chosen David long before that. Psalm 78, verse 70, it says, He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. I like this verse, Psalm 89, verse 20. It says, I have found David my servant with my sacred oil. I have anointed him. That's how God works. He chooses people. He selects them. He determines in advance that they will be invited into his great, mysterious plan. It's how he works in your life, too. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, you know, because we can't talk about being chosen and not look at this great passage in the Bible in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 1. I'm just going to highlight a few verses for us. Verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Did you get that? In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given us in the one he loves. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Down to verse 11, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And then it says in verse 14, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the Redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now that chapter is worth praying through later on today for all of us. It's telling us we're a chosen people, just like David. It's telling us that we were predestined for this. It's telling us that we were forgiven of our sins. It's telling us that we have an inheritance. An inheritance. And you get an advanced deposit of that inheritance in this life by having the Holy Spirit come inside of you. God is seriously a God of blessing and favor and goodness. He delights in the choosing of people. And God found in David a life that was certainly worth choosing. Someone who would then in return give his whole life to the pursuit of God. 
So chapter 16 and verse 1, the Lord says to Samuel, Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. You see, the great pursuit always begins with us responding to God choosing us. He takes the first initiative. And so we can say like David, I'm chosen, not because I'm so ready, not because I'm so fit for whatever he's choosing me for. I'm chosen because God chose me. But we can also say this, I'm called. I'm called to a royal destiny, just as David was, something that involves the advance of God's royal kingdom realm in this world. God's always calling his people to something, right? If you're one of the people of God, he's called you already to something. He's, he's gotten your attention and he said, I want you to be about this. I've got a plan for you to fulfill. I've got a purpose for you to achieve. We're called to a royal destiny, just like David was. So here's how it works out in his life. The Lord says to his prophet Samuel, all right, Samuel, I want you to go over to Jesse's house because one of his sons will be king. So head over to Bethlehem. By the way, Bethlehem means house of bread. Take your anointing oil with you and get ready, and I'll show you which of the sons of Jesse I've chosen to be king. So Samuel hits down the road, and he's taking his oil, and he's going to the house of bread, Bethlehem. Bethlehem, that's kind of a unique place, isn't it? Seems to me someone else that's famous comes from Bethlehem. You know, away in a manger... Who was born in Bethlehem? Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Jesus was born in the same village as David. Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is a descendant of David. So we see a lot in David. We see an early prototype of the kind of life that the Messiah came to give us all. Samuel heads down to the village. People are nervous. Says the elders of the town come and meet him at the probably at the the gates of the city, and they go, do you come in peace? Elders get nervous sometimes. It happens in churches. They get nervous. It's okay. They they don't need to get nervous. Do you come in peace? Now, you got to picture Samuel here. The only way I can describe him is he's an old, aged prophet with a staff and a cloak. I think he looks like Gandalf. So here comes Gandalf, I mean Samuel, to the village, and the elders meet him. What are you doing here? Do you come in peace? I come in peace. What did you want to do here? Because, you know, when the prophet comes to the village, it could be bad for you if you're not doing well. Um, I have come here um, for a reason. Um, Consecrate yourselves, and Jesse, your family, consecrate all yourselves. The Lord's going to do something. Like, okay, let's go consecrate ourselves. Samuel's here. It's not like Samuel told them up in advance, you know, sent an email saying, hey, when I'm in the house of bread, you know what? Can we just hang out? Can we like do nachos and just talk? Because like, I just miss you guys. It's like, no, no, he just shows up. I'm here. Where's Jesse? You have sons. Consecrate yourself. They're like, okay. This is a serious, serious moment. Jesse has eight sons. So he gets his sons into the house. Samuel the prophet sits down. 
And he brings the sons past Samuel one at a time to see which one of them might be the king. First up is Eliab, the firstborn. Samuel looks at him and thinks, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But then God whispers something to him. Look at chapter 16 at verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. In other words, he's probably good looking and tall. For I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. No, Eliab, that's not the one. So then after Eliab comes Abinadab. Abinadab is a good guy. You know, he's, he's, he's a pretty normal second-born kind of guy, and he passes in front of Samuel and The Lord says that's not him either. And then after Abinadab comes Shema, he's the third-born son, and he comes and he passes in front of Samuel, and the Lord says to Samuel, that's not the one either. And all seven sons of Jesse come by, and they all pass in front of Samuel, one at a time, and Jesse the father's thinking, well, one of these has got to be king. And the Lord says to Samuel, "There's there's no one here to be king. And if you're Samuel, you might be thinking, did I not hear from God that God said to me that one of his sons, the sons of Jesse, will be the next king? So Samuel figured it out, and he says to Jesse, he says, do you have any other sons? (laughs) And uh, Jesse says, well, there's one more. But he's not here. He's, uh, he's out with the sheep. We didn't, we didn't think of inviting him to this moment. You wanted to see my sons, and that's, this other guy's Jesse. He's one of, or, this, is, this is David. He's out in the fields taking care of the sheep. And uh, I didn't really think he should be invited to this. And Samuel says, go get him. No dinner till he arrives. That's literally what it means. He says, we will not sit down and eat until Jesse, I'm sorry, until David arrives. So David is now sought after. Now, somebody goes out to the field to say to David, hey, you're, you're requested here in the room. David is the leftover, right? He's son number eight. And isn't it true that in Hebrew culture that um, seven is the number of completion? So Jesse and his wife, they have seven sons, and they think, good, we're done. And then one more comes up. And so Jesse gets the short end of the stick. Jesse is the runt of the litter. And maybe it was like this. Maybe Jesse, sorry, David, thank you. Maybe David thought, you know, I'm just always the one who has to do all the hard work. I'm the one who always gets neglected. I'm never invited to the important moments. David grows up in a home where he's not valued. There's not a great relationship between him and his dad. And yet Samuel hears the voice saying, go get that kid. Bring him in here. I've already chosen my person. I want someone to be on my throne who's after my own heart. The point is David was looked over. He didn't seem to qualify. Can I share with you one of the greatest moments of my life? It happened when I was in grade five. I think I've shared the story about seven years ago. When I was in grade five and we would have 
You know, warm days in June, the, the teachers would let us, as boys, go play baseball on Friday afternoons for the last two hours. We'd go out to the ball diamond. No teachers came out with us. They just stayed in the school and drank coffee. That's how it was back then. And uh, we just went out there, and we had to pick teams. And so I was a captain one day when I wasn't normally a captain. And, and uh, all the boys came out, the grade five, six boys, and there was probably just enough for two teams. One of the boys of our small school, his name was Michael, he came out too. Michael came from a poor family. They had immigrated to Manitoba after World War II and settled in our little community. And there was nine or ten kids. We couldn't even count how many brothers and sisters Michael had. And they were very poor. Michael brought bread and butter sandwiches to the lunchroom. He didn't have a lunch kit like the rest of us kids. He had a brown bag. Michael wore hand-me-down clothes. He had suspenders at a time when they weren't cool to wear. He had flood pants. He had the smell of fuel oil upon him. He had greasy hair and he had yellow teeth. And he was emaciated and malnourished. Michael was kind of like the brunt of the school. And so he was always being um, treated with disdain. He was bullied and picked on and beat up in the schoolyard so many times we lost track. It seemed like the whole school hated him. The big powerful boys would pin him to the ground and he would just lay there and take it all and laugh it off. And I used to watch that stuff. It used to bother me. I didn't really like Michael, but I, I pitied him. And so on this June day when we're out in the ball diamond area and we're picking teams and I got to pick teams, here comes Michael sauntering out to the field. He's skinny and he's got shoes with twine for laces to hold his shoes together and he's overcompensating for his poor self-image in the way he walks. And he lines up on the, the baseball diamond line as if, somebody please pick me. No other boy would want him on their team. And I'm, I'm over here on the left, and I, I'm picking my team. We pick several guys each. Get to about the middle of the pack, and I, I, I sense something. I, and I'm not a Christian. I just sense this powerful force of love kind of say to me, don't you dare not pick him. And I said, I want Michael. You call out the guy's names, right? I want Michael. And I want you to play third base all the other boys look at me like, are you crazy? This is going to wreck your team. He's not sports-minded at all. He can't catch anything. I, mean, I want Michael. And I threw him my new baseball glove that I got for my birthday, which was really too big for me. That's how it was back then. Parents bought you stuff for like five years in advance. <laughs> you know? It's like, you'll grow into it. I threw him my baseball glove. And he went, thanks. I said, Michael, you're third base today. And he jumped over to third base. We started the ball game. I'd like to tell you that he was really good, but he wasn't. He was so bad. He couldn't pick up grounders. You know how bad that is? He couldn't pick up grounders. He would throw balls to the wrong players. It was embarrassing. And all the other boys were like, why did you pick Michael? I said, he's third base. Don't question it. And we finished that game. We lost. But Michael, for a brief moment in his life, felt Chosen. Chosen. I'll never forget that. That was one of my finest moments in my life. And I didn't even know God. There are people that are overlooked in our churches 
who are gems, who are great princes and princesses. There are people in our network of friendships and in our working environments that are so special. If only they could be chosen. If only they could be selected and called to the team. God puts us in proximity with them to share our, to share our hope with them that they can know the heart of God which invites you into his great kingdom. David comes in from the field. He's probably smelling of sheep. Walks in the room and thinks, who's the Gandalf guy? Asks his brother, who's that dude? It's like, Samuel, the prophet. Treat him with some respect. He's here to see you. Okay. Verse 12, it says, David was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and had handsome features. And as soon as he passed by in front of Samuel, the Lord says, rise up, anoint him, this is the one. And the old prophet gets up, takes his horn of oil and uncorks it in the name of the Lord, and he pours it over his head. And the oil drips down on David's forehead and his face and into his shirt and his chest, and oh, it makes him smell good. And I can picture Samuel saying to David right then as he whispered in his ear, you are now the king of Israel. And I can picture David saying, you mean one day I'll be king? And he says, no. As of right now, you are the king of Israel. You're called. This is not only a story about David. It is a story about me and you. It is a story about our souls and how precious they are. And how God the Father calls us from obscurity into the brilliance and brightness of his kingdom realm. In the scriptures, it says this, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but you, you, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you, you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, to him who loves us, amen, (laughs) and has freed us from our sins by his blood, amen, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. This is who we are. That is our identity. You are chosen, you are called, and you are qualified. You're qualified. People may miss that. Maybe your parents miss that. Maybe your best friends don't see it in you, but God sees it in you. Chosen, called, qualified. And here's where we must get rid of any sense of identity that says the opposite. Any sense of identity and any scripts that we have playing in our minds that say, I'm I'm insignificant, I'm not important, I have no real purpose in the plans of God. I'm just nothing. I'm just a struggling, stumbling believer and sometimes I get it right and sometimes I get it wrong. Friends, when that is our identity, we have missed out on so much. The reality is, is you have an incredible identity in God. We sang about it all morning. I am a child of the Father. 
Do I live as if I am? Or am I afraid to step into that identity? You have an amazing calling. You're really chosen for a purpose. You're royalty. As God looks at you through Christ, you are royalty. It tells us in Ephesians that through the, through, the, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is displayed in the heavenly realms. God is using the church on display against the principalities and powers, mocking them, saying, hey, look at these people over here. Look how awesome they are. They used to be sinful, but they're not anymore. I've taken care of their sins. Now they're royal. And the, the demon world hates that. Just hates the church. That's why churches struggle. The enemy hates the church. Why? Because there we claim our identity. We come into this room not just to sing songs and pat each other in the back. We get into this room, friends, so we can lay hold of our ground and say, this, this is who I am. I will not be moved from this. And the preaching better back it up. So may we all stop saying to ourselves that we're nothing May we all start saying to ourselves, we are an amazing work of God. And be humble about it, of course. We are an amazing work of God, crowned with dignity. And as the Bible says, splendor. I preached on that last September. There's splendor over the people of God. This is who we are. And I think in David, we actually find out how real this is. And so I say to myself, you know, I, friends, I think it's time in the church, in our part of the world, to put an end to what I call brokenness theology. Brokenness theology has been showing up a lot in the last 10 years or so. And brokenness theology, like most aberrant theologies, get it partly right, but partly wrong. Brokenness theology says, I am such a sinner. I, I am such a problem for God. I just have to live with the reality of my dysfunction all the time, because that's who I am. I'm a dysfunctional person. And you know, brokenness theology teaches me I've got an old sinful nature, and that old sinful nature just kind of rears up its head every now and then, and I just get stuck in this paradigm of sin and then being forgiven, and sin and being forgiven, and sin and being forgiven, and so I've just given up. And so the only way I can deal with my life is say, I'm just broken. I'm broken all the time, and I will just fulfill my broken identity. Oh, has the devil ever done some dreadful work upon some people? Brokenness theology comes from the pit of hell. And it ought to be exposed. The Bible says you don't have an old sinful nature. The Bible says your old man was crucified in Christ. It says that in Romans 6, right? Yeah. Crucified. What's crucified? Your old Adamic nature was put to death. It's, it doesn't exist anymore. You say, well, I have a sinful nature. No, the NIV translated that wrong. But in 2011, they corrected it. So, good on them. Good on them. You don't have a sinful nature. Well, don't I still struggle? Yeah, it's called the flesh. The Greek word is sarkos. And it means that somehow in our bodies, until they're redeemed, the presence of sin can still be activated there, and, but we never have to give in to it. But hear me on this, it's not our identity. We are primarily saints who occasionally sin, not sinners who sometimes get it right. 
Who are you? Who are you? You got to pick one. You're going to live from one of those identities. You can live over here in the shadows and say, well, you know, I know Jesus is in my life, but I don't know to what degree, and so I'm trying to follow him, but I'm following myself, and I'm enjoying these things, and I'm just living for myself, and here I am in the shadows with one foot in the light, and I'm trying to get all the benefits of living in the light, and it doesn't work. Why do you want to be here? Why would you want to live in the shadows? Why not come out of the shadows and walk straight into the light and claim and live in your true identity in Jesus Christ? I am a child of the Father. Jesus did this. I don't deserve it, I know that, but I like it. (laughs) And I embrace it. Do I struggle? Yes. Do I occasionally say, yes, but it's not me. Yes, it's me, but it's not really me. It happens through me, but it's not my real identity. So what does the scripture say? Confess your sins to God, repent of them, and get back in the light. Here's where we live. We live in the light. We don't live in the darkness. If you want to hang out in the darkness and you enjoy it, i got to ask you this. Maybe you should question your salvation. Just maybe. Just maybe. Because if you like it in the darkness, that tells us your heart has not been changed. So, we claim what is true about us in the scriptures. And you know, I am so sick of brokenness theology. The lead team knows this. I rant on it all the time. We've had brokenness theology in the Western world enough to choke a horse. We need a break from this stuff. We need to cast it to the curb. Kick it off. It is not who we are. You're in Christ. You have a solid, amazing identity. You've been chosen before the foundation of the world. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You're not junk. You're a royal priesthood through the blood of Jesus Christ. You've been called by God to a life of incredible significance. Do not settle for less. Those of you who are thinking of getting married, don't settle for less in your marriages. Pick the right person who will walk with you into that royal identity and that destiny, you'll have a good marriage. You've been called, you've been chosen, and you're also qualified. You're qualified. Verse 13, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Here's David, probably grinning from ear to ear, looking at his brothers like, ha, ha. Maybe not. He's smeared with the oil. Everybody smells it. They're like, David? David's going to be the next king? Are you kidding me? God does not look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. David smells great. And he is the king at that moment. He's had no training. He's already qualified. He's never been to King's Seminary, and he's qualified. He's just a farm boy come in from the fields after playing his harp and singing worship songs while he looked after the sheep and God says, I saw all those moments. I saw you alone. I saw your heart for me. You're the kind of person I can shape a nation with. So come, pour the oil on him. You see, what qualifies you to fulfill your royal destiny is not what you bring to the table. It's what God brings out of you. And he's bringing royalty out of you. It's in you. It's already in you. He's bringing it out. 
It's all part of the regeneration of the life through Jesus. So it is time we quit saying over ourselves, I will never be able to achieve much for God. I will finish my life in shame. I will miss out on the movement of God in my day. We can just say, no, we don't say those things. They are not true of us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, at verse 26, Paul put it this way, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Love that. And yet still in the back of our minds we might be saying, but I still sin, I still struggle. Well, if that's true and it is often true for many. We need the help of the Holy Spirit to break sinful patterns. And this whole battle that we're in is between flesh and spirit, right? That's what Paul says in Romans. You gotta make a choice. Will I serve the flesh or will I serve the spirit? The spirit is given so that we don't have to give in to the impulses of the flesh. And we should hate sin Paul said it in Romans, shall we continue in sin so that God's grace may increase? And he says, no way. We're dead to sin. We're alive to righteousness. You're qualified. Don't say I'm too young or I'm too old or I travel too much or I'm not rich enough. Or don't say this to yourself, you know what, I've just got wounds that keep me from stepping into this identity. And friends, you might be here today and you've come from a church background or a Christian upbringing that smothered you, that injured you, that did not validate who you were, and you have been crushed by Christian friends. I understand it. It's happening to many people. So I'm going to do something for you on behalf of the whole Christian church. I will apologize to you. If no one else will, I will right now. I'm sorry for what happened to you earlier in your life. I'm sorry that you were mistreated. I'm sorry that the church hurt you. If it was me, forgive me. But move past that. Let go. Step into your new identity in Christ. Forgive the people who did that to you so that you can realize that you are chosen, you are called, and you are qualified. You're a kingdom agent of the Most High God on earth. He wants you to walk around on this planet and carry his presence like an ambassador. And there is a place for preparing. After David received his anointing that day, you know what he did? He went back to the sheepfold. He just went back to his normal job for a while. God was still using that experience to shape him and prepare him. God called the lowliest to make him the highest. David could have said, well, that's great that I'm anointed to be king, but Saul is still on the throne. Yeah, it looks that way, David, but his days are numbered. As far as heaven is concerned, you're it. And friends, there's something in there that we've got to lay hold of. We have to see ourselves as heaven sees us, or we'll miss out on the whole thing. You have to live from above, not from below. When I get kind of introspective, and I do at times, and I get kind of morbid on my own soul, I'm like, oh my goodness, you are a piece of work. (sighs) 
I have to actually by faith go up with my eyes and say, Lord, I'm going to see myself through your perspective. And I see myself as chosen and called and redeemed and forgiven and set apart by God and that I'm one of his sons and daughters. And I go, oh, yeah, that's who I am. And I will live out of that identity. Some of you are too focused on Saul. Saul's fading. The new leader has come. Keep on the pursuit. Make it the biggest goal of your life that you will get onto third base by the calling of God. Not because you're so prepared, but just because he's invited you and wants you there. I'm going to lead us in a prayer moment here. And I want to invite you to stand with me as we do that. Let's stand together. As we step into this series, friends, we're going to learn to see ourselves the way God sees us. We're going to build our whole lives by pursuing him and embracing his promises and entering into his presence where there's life. So just bow your hearts with me as we pray today.